Always a joy just to prepare our hearts and so grateful for our worship team aligning our hearts, not just uh, with truths of God's Word, but the truths that even come from the text in which we'll be preaching. And so today we are looking at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. And I want to begin with this question directed at you. What are you living for? What are you living for? That's the question this morning. And you realize that your answer to that question really determines the direction of your life. If you have uh, the wrong direction, then you know that you'll ultimately end up in the wrong destination. If your purpose, if your mission, if your goal in life is maybe a little fuzzy, a little bit vague, then everything else will be fuzzy and vague. And you've heard that adage, I'm sure, maybe even quoted it yourself, that those who, fa- uh, who fail to plan, what do they do? They plan to fail. And that is true of life. If you don't know your purpose, then chances are you're just going to be swept away with culture. And Paul talks about by being swept away by every wind of doctrine, you'll be swept away by worldviews. And so you need to be anchored to something. What is that something that guides and governs your life? It's crucial for us as a church to be able to answer this question very clearly and correctly. What are you living for? There was a young man who came to W.E. Gladstone. He was the prime minister in England. And he came to him and he said, Mr. Gladstone, I would appreciate you just giving me a few moments in which I can lay before you my plans for the future. He said, I would really like to study law. Mr. Gladstone said, hey, that's great. Well, what then? Then, sir, I would like to gain entrance to the bar of England. Yes, young man. And what then? Well, then, sir, I hope to have a place in Parliament, in the House of Lords. Yes, young man. What then? Well, then I hope to do great things for Britain. You can imagine, he says next, yes, young man, what then? Uh, Well, I hope to retire and take life easy. Well, yes, young man, what then? Well, I suppose I'm going to die. Yes, young man, what then? And he said, well, I never really thought about that, sir. And so Gladstone looked at him and said, young man, you are a fool. Go home and think hard through life. And that that, that story illustrates for us very clearly that all of us, we better have an answer to those very questions. What is the meaning of life? What does it mean to truly live What matters the most in life and death? If death is a certainty, then we certainly better be living in a way that prepares us for death. Just by show of hands, how many of you know someone that has died maybe earlier than expected? Yes. All of us, all of us, I'm sure have encountered death probably 
too young an age. For me, it was my brother. I was 12. He was 19. Took me by surprise and got me thinking and contemplating what is life all about? What happens after you die? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a God? Is there truth? Well, this morning we come to a very familiar text of Scripture. It is a text that people have memorized. It's a text that I had my daughter memorize just last night. You may have memorized it in Sunday school. It is Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is... Yeah, you know, we all get our Awana points because we all know this one already. I've seen this verse tattooed on people. It's the subject of many books. Lots of people have preached on this passage. It really is one of the most compacted, compelling, and challenging verses in all of Scripture. Some have even said this is the apex, not just of Paul's letter, but it's the apex of the gospel itself. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Just 12 English words, nine in the original Greek. And what it does is it succinctly summarizes Paul's philosophy about life and death. You see, to the Apostle Paul, regardless of the decision about whether he's going to continue to live or whether he's going to die, in Paul's heart, in Paul's mind, everything, everything revolved around Christ. He was single-minded in his devotion to Jesus. And it's this one verse right here that reveals to us why Paul did what he did, why Paul said what he said, and how the apostle, sitting, remember, in a jail cell, how he found the strength to endure incredible trial and hardship. So let's read this passage together, starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll go through 21. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that in, with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. O Lord, may you please impress the truth of this passage deep in our hearts so that our souls would respond in worship, in gratitude, in faithfulness. And that we could say, along with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen. Now, I want to begin here by just getting the flow of Paul's argument. Because we could just dive right into verse 21. But what we need to keep in mind is that verse 21 follows what came before. And verse 21 begins with four, which means that we need to go back 
and see the argument that Paul is building, which really begins all the way back at verse 12. What is Paul's argument? He's saying, look, these circumstances, this trial that I'm going through, this suffering, my imprisonment, this antagonism, this opposition from even believers who are preaching the gospel with false motives, all of this is advancing the gospel. And so really what he's doing is he's encouraging the Philippians. He's trying to give them perspective. He's saying, look, this is not a dead end, my imprisonment. This is not a detour. In fact, what this is, is it's divinely and sovereignly determined by my good God. This is all for my good and for the good of gospel proclamation. And so Paul, again, is trying to give them the divine perspective that ultimately all of this makes me rejoice. It brings me joy because life is more than just my comfort and ease and freedom and even life. Christ is being proclaimed. And knowing that God is in complete and total control for Paul and for all of us, we can always, always rejoice, even with the threat of death hanging over your head. And that is what Paul says. Look there at verse 20. He says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And that right there enables him to say what's next in verse 21. He makes this astounding assertion, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we got to set all that up because if we just jump right to 21, it makes no sense to us. If you just look at that passage all by itself, divorced from the context it has you scratching your head saying, Paul, what in the world do you mean to live as Christ, to die as gain? I mean, it sounds good. It, it's, it sounds pretty spiritual, but what does he mean? Commentators will say things like, well, what Paul means is that Christ is the essence of life. What does that mean? He's the essence of life. Oh, Paul, uh, for, for him, Christ was the reason for his actions the reason for all the good that he did, and that sounds a little better. Christ was the source of his strength. Now, all those things are good. All those things are true, no doubt. But what I want to do is go beyond just the platitude, and I want to think critically and deeply, because for me personally, I want to know what he means to live is Christ. How? does that statement translate into your life personally? How does it translate into your life? Your everyday coming and going, your parenting, your marriage, your singleness, your school. Well, what does that passage mean for all of life? It's great to say that Christ is the essence of my life. But if I don't know how to practically play that out, it's going to be extremely disheartening, extremely discouraging. So I've been wrestling all week with Paul and the Spirit of Christ. What does this mean? How am I supposed to take this verse and translate it into the kind of joy and boldness that Paul seems to have while he's sitting in prison? Because I think about me sitting in prison, and I'm asking a prayer request like, Lord, get me out of here. That's not Paul. He's rejoicing. 
He's about to have his head chopped off. He's rejoicing. I would be crying. I would be terrified. How can we make this true for us? You will die one day. All of you. Unless the Lord comes back. Have you ever thought about what's going to be on your tombstone? I I would love to have to Dom, to live was Christ, to die was gain. I'm, I'm pretty sure you would want something similar like that, either said as a eulogy or on your tombstone. The question is, how can we live in such a way that that's actually true? I'm confident that if we could get a hold of this passage here, it can radically, dramatically change your life. And so we're going to follow this outline. We're just asking the question, what does it mean for you to live for Christ? And we're going to look at a s- several different points. We're going to start with this. If you're taking notes, I, I think the, the, the outline is there in your bulletin. But if you're taking notes, we're looking at Christ needs to be our personal Savior. Then Christ needs to be publicly put on display. Christ needs to be the purpose of my life. He needs to be the priority of my life. He needs to be the pursuit of my life. He needs to be the pleasure of my life. He needs to be the passion of my life. And he needs to be the pattern of my life. So here we go. Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that Christ needs to be the personal Savior of your life. Look at how it begins. For to me, that speaks of Paul's personal testimony. He's not speaking for anybody else. When you go back to the beginning of the letter, he says, Paul and Timothy to the saints there in Philippi. But he's not speaking on behalf of Timothy. He'll mention Epaphroditus several times. He's not talking about Epaphroditus. He's not talking about any other apostle or any other Christian Paul is personalizing this and saying, to me, to live as Christ. Not to us, but to me. And what we learn just from the very get-go is that this relationship that Paul has is intensely personal. Intensely personal. So much so that he emphatically begins with a statement, to me. The, the Greek construction here, as you look at it, it's fronted for emphasis. This is not just some indicative, something that's just true. No, this is something that is true to the Apostle Paul himself. To me. To me. This is his personal mission statement. There are still some who read our mission statement, and it's like, that's my church's mission statement. I don't want it to be the church, all of us' mission statement. Well, I do. But I want it to be yours personally. The reason why this is so precious to Paul and personal to Paul is because salvation and a relationship with Christ must be your own. It's individualized. Christ is not something that can be gifted to another human being. No one else can repent and believe for you. No one can respond to the offer of salvation on your behalf. No one else is going to confess and commit to following Christ but you and you alone. I've heard people share their testimony and they say things like, oh, I've always been a Christian. Oh, really? Oh, I was born a Christian. 
Well, that's not true. No, at some point in your life, you had to make the decision to respond to the gospel of grace, to respond to the call for discipleship, to respond to leave all and follow after Jesus. Look, salvation is not something genetic. You don't pass it on like your curly hair or your blue eyes. Salvation is something that cannot be inherited. It cannot be signed over to the next of kin. Salvation is between you and Christ and you alone in Christ. To me, not only indicates a personal relationship, but is a personal allegiance. Paul says, look, whatever life might be to other people, to me, I have bowed the knee to King Jesus. You know, when I was a teenager and I was a professing Christian, I um, walked around knowing that I wasn't really a Christian. I actually called myself a non-practicing Christian, like that was virtuous. The reality was oftentimes I go to bed and I would have these nightmares. I would have the nightmare of hearing Jesus say this, depart from me, I never knew you. And that was terrifying to me. Depart from me, I never knew you. Those are probably the, the worst words that anyone will ever hear. We don't want to be like that guy in Acts 19. You remember him? He's riding the coattails of the Apostle Paul. He's going around, he's trying to minister, and he's trying to cast out demons. And he goes up and he, he tries to cast out a demon. He says, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the Spirit responds to him, well, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? It's because he didn't have the Spirit of Christ in him. He wasn't saved. He didn't know Jesus. There was no intimacy between him and the Son of God. Let me ask you this. Is Christ personal to you? Not to mom, not to dad, not to child, not to neighbor, not to pastor, not to church member, but is Christ personally yours? If we were to put this up on the screen or to put it up on a whiteboard, for me to live equals, what would you put there? What would you put there? Could you put Christ to you personally? And then if your spouse actually graded this uh, spiritual equation, would... would would your wife or would your husband roll their eyes? Don't put Christ there. That's not true. What about your children? Do your kids know that Christ means more to you than anything else in this world? Listen, you can't depend on the knowledge or intimacy that others have with Jesus. He must be yours and yours personally. For me to live as Christ means that Jesus and the salvation he provides is extremely personal. But while it's personal, the reality is that it's not private. It's actually very public. There's a public dimension to the statement that Paul makes. And by public, I don't mean that, that Paul is putting on displays. He's not performing here. He's not being showy. But practically speaking, even though his life and ministry were for Christ, they were ultimately aimed at people, for people, for the benefit, the spiritual growth, the spiritual health of others. And so it becomes extremely public. 
Paul poured out his life for the spiritual good of other people. So let's take a look at that. I know that Christ is my life when Christ is publicly put on display in my life. Now, there are two words in the Greek for life. One is bios. You guys are familiar with this from biology. And that's just talking about life in general. But the other one is the one that I love, and it's zoe. Zoe. It's used to describe the essence of life, what life is all about. And so in Colossians 3, 4, we read this. When Christ, who is our life, you ask, well, what is the Christian life about? The Christian life, even when you think about Christian life, it is attached to Christ. And when you think about all the prepositions in the New Testament and its relationship to Christ, we realize that we are in Christ and we do things by Christ and with Christ and for Christ and from Christ. And all those prepositions talk about our relationship to Christ, but all those prepositions are we're in Christ and for Christ and through Christ for the good of other people. Look, there should be no one in your life that is surprised to hear that you're a Christian. Oh, wait, what? I didn't know you were a Christian. I've known you 10 years. Had no idea. I've actually heard that from some people. Not from me, but I've heard other people say those things. No one, no one should be surprised. You know, I have a um, strange love affair. It's a little nerdy love affair. So when I tell people I'm really into chess, they're like, really? Well, because I kind of like to keep that nerdy stuff on the down low. Uh, Jesus isn't a hobby, a secret hobby that you have. You don't keep your love for Christ, your commitment to Christ on the down low. People should be able to observe by the way that you live and the way that you talk that Jesus means everything to you. Listen, church, the Bible says that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. And he should be everything in between. Is he that for you? Can people see that? Do they witness it? Do they smell that in you? Look back at the text. It's also important to note that the infinitive to live, it is in the present tense, which means that Paul's saying, for me, to go on living is Christ. Look at verse 22, same chapter. Paul says this, but if I am to go on in the flesh, that is to go on having this life, what this means is it'll be fruitful labor for me. And the labor that he's speaking of is that all this means is I have more opportunities to love and to serve and to minister to others. And so when Paul says, I'm gonna keep on living for Christ, what he's saying is, look, as long as I have life, however much time the Lord gives, however much breath I have in my lungs, however much blood is flowing through these veins, I know one thing is for sure, I am gonna keep on living for Christ. And I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm showing him off to others. I want others to see him and know him and know how great he is. I want to draw people to his attributes, to appreciate him the way that I do. Matthew 5.16, you're very familiar. We are to let our light shine before what? Before men, that they might see our good works and then what? Glorify our Father who is in heaven. Others will see that 
I love the Lord and I loathe the world. That's what Paul says. Others will see that I can continue to rejoice even when I'm suffering because of how satisfied I am in Christ. On the Damascus road, Paul would say, I stumbled across that treasure that was hidden in the field and then I went and sold everything that I had to obtain Christ. And now everything else I regard as rubbish and I regard as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Yes, I want others to see that Jesus is my treasure. He is my joy. He is my crown. And nothing matters more to me than to see Christ exalted in my life. See, Paul's faith was personal, but it was very, very public. Charles Elcott puts it this way. I love this. He said, My body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. The reality is that Christ's worthiness, His beauty, His majesty is often judged by the way that you live. The people who are not opening up their Bibles and not listening to John MacArthur on the radio, but people who are just observing you because you're a Christian, their view of Christ is shaped and formed in large part just by how you live, how you respond to adversity, how you respond to trial, how you respond to triumph. What are you communicating about Christ? Is it accurate? Is it biblical? Is it in line? Is it in step with the truth of God's word? And listen, make no mistake about it. Living for Christ is much harder than dying for Christ. I kind of have these lofty ideas sometimes of, oh, here comes persecution. Persecution is going to come, and they're going to come bursting through the door with a gun to my head and say, do you love Jesus? And I'll be like, yes, and they're going to shoot me, and I'm going to die. It's like, oh, wow, I can do that. For the Apostle Paul, he knows his head could be chopped off. But as his head's chopped off, you know what happens in that moment? Glory. That's a moment. It is much, much harder for a lifetime to lay down your life and die daily, to serve, to be patient, to be compassionate, to be generous, to be prayerful, to be forgiving. All those things take a lifetime, and they are extremely hard to do. But if Christ is your life, he is working that through you for his glory. Now, what we need to do here is flesh this out some more. Because practically speaking, what Paul is trying to communicate is, yes, it is personal to live as Christ. And yes, it is public. But what else does that mean? Let me see if I can help us here. It also means that Christ is the purpose of my life. What makes this even more dramatic is that there are no verbs here in the Greek. You say, Dom, how does that make that more dramatic? Well, look there at the text. The, the literal rendering in the Greek has no is between Christ or to live and Christ. The, the word is is not there. So the verse actually reads, for me to live, Christ, to die, gain. It's actually pretty sweet because there's a cadence, and there's an alliteration that Paul uses here. He says, ta zain Christos, ta apothein kerdos. Ta zain Christos, ta apothein kerdos. To live, Christ. To die, gain. That is Paul's reason for existence. To Paul, life is Christ. 
He's so preoccupied with this that you could summarize everything he does with just one word. Just Christ. That's it. Before his conversion, Paul might have said, for me to live is Torah. It's the law. It's works righteousness. It's being pleasing to God. But now his righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. So he doesn't have to give you a dissertation. He doesn't have to write a book. He just has to say for me, Christ. Everything that Paul did, everything that he aimed at was always to advance the knowledge of Christ, to help people grow in their love for Christ, love for Christ's church, love for the gospel. His singular aim was to bring glory to Christ And that is what we learn from his life. He thinks about it. He dreams about it. He talks about it. Every decision is based on his relationship with Christ so that Christ is the epicenter of his existence. If somehow, some way, Christ would go out of existence, guess what would happen to Paul? He wouldn't exist. My kids, they love to play 20 questions. They'll just fire questions over and over again. And oftentimes I'll ask questions back. And if you're in youth ministry or children's ministry, a lot of times, like if you don't know the answer, you could just say Jesus. You're probably going to get it right, right? Just Jesus, just Jesus. For Paul, same thing. Paul, why do you go on missionary trips? Christ. Paul, why are you suffering? Christ. Paul, why do you preach? Christ. Paul, why do you make sacrifices? Christ. 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 That is Paul's life. Paul told the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he said this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And you observe Paul's life. You just follow him in the book of Acts and that's exactly what he does. Paul is preaching in the synagogues. He's preaching in the marketplaces. He starts the church at Philippi because he's preaching by the riverside. He's preaching in the jail. He's preaching as a prisoner. He's preaching as a pastor. He's preaching as a tent maker. Why? Because life for me is Christ. His message over and over again, Jesus Christ and him crucified. What else do you want to talk about, Paul? Nothing. That is life. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he took that message to kings and soldiers and to statesmen and to priests and to philosophers, to Jews, to Gentiles, to men, to women, to young and to old, everybody. He wanted Christ to be at the center. He told the Romans in Romans chapter 14, for not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, who are we? Who do we belong to? We are the Lord's. Paul lives in and with and for on account of Christ. He has no autonomous identity. And so he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look, brothers and sisters, do you live your life for the purpose of magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, it's our church's mission statement, but it needs to be yours personally. 
Well, when we realize Christ is the purpose of our life, it puts everything in perspective. This is, this is why we exist. This is why I'm here. Whether you have two more years or 20 more years, it is because of Christ. If we know that he's the purpose of our life, then he also becomes the priority of our life. And that takes us to our next point. We can say for me to live as Christ when Christ is the priority. He must be number one. That's what it means to say Jesus Christ is my Lord. You know, many call him Lord, but you can't tell because he's not really the priority of their life. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus says himself, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And then he says this, and do not do what I, what, say. If Jesus is in fact Lord of your life, that means that he's going to define everything. He's going to dictate everything. He's going to direct everything. He's going to determine everything. And you're going to be perfectly fine with that. When Christ is our priority, that means nothing comes before him. Nothing. You know, whenever I come to like a four-way stop, I have to refresh myself on the rules there because it always looks like we're just like all looking at each other. Like, who goes here? Is it, I think it's the person to the right or is the person that gets there first? Is it the bigger car because I've got a little Prius? Like, go, go right ahead. When you come to the four-way stop, there's no questioning. Jesus always goes first. He yields to nobody. He always has the right of way. Too oftentimes, I think, we're not even thinking about Christ in the picture. We go first. It's our desires. It's our plans. It's our relationships. But listen, there can be no competing loyalties when it comes to Christ. No idols. No other agendas. He is. He must be the controlling factor in your life. So that means he's the captain of your life. He's the driver of your life. He's the boss of your life. He's the lieutenant of your life. Is he lieutenant? What's the highest thing? I see my mind. He's the what? He's the general of your life. Christ comes before career, before business, before government, before ministry, before leisure, before your rest and relaxation, before your vacations. In fact, he comes before mom and dad. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Every single aspect, which means work takes a back seat. Sports take a back seat. Entertainment takes a back seat. Jesus should be in charge of everything that you watch, everything that you listen to. There's no corner of your life that says, well... Jesus, you don't get to say so here. We must love Christ more than anything and anyone in this world, and we must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We are to love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And anyone who tells you differently, who tries to dumb down the allegiance, is not serving you well. This is what it means for Christ to be our top priority. So listen, the purpose of Paul's life was Christ. The priority of Paul's life was Christ, which means that if he's our purpose and he is our priority, then he will be the largest and best and greatest pursuit of our life. Paul had no pursuits, no ambitions apart from Christ. And this is what I want you to tune into. 
Because right now you could check out and say, but that's the Apostle Paul. Look at how he was called. Look at how he was gifted. Look at what he's commissioned to do. And the reality is that this is not just for the Apostle Paul. This is for everybody. If you are claiming Christ, this is no like special design for Paul. This is all of us. Every single one of us. You don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to hold an official role in the church. You need no title. If you have Christian, that's all you need. He must be your main pursuit. And it's true of Paul, yes. That was his greatest pursuit, his greatest ambition. It comes before all things. Before he's a preacher, before he's a teacher, he's first a Christian. And every single Christian should be on a passionate pursuit to know and love and to serve Christ. And so you say, well, how do I know if I'm really pursuing Christ? And it's real simple. You just ask yourself this question. What am I investing my time in? How am I investing my money, my energy, my thoughts? What am I dreaming about? What do I long to do? That'll let you know if you're truly pursuing Christ or not. I think about all these Olympic athletes. We got the Olympics coming up. And I'm thinking about uh, my Lakers. <laughs> Don't want to cry. Um, that lost. LeBron James spends a million dollars. That is not an exaggeration. That is actual dollar amount that he spills in one year just on his body alone. Michael Phelps used to sleep in this like high altitude chamber to give him his superhuman swimming powers. All these Olympic athletes that are preparing for the Olympics, they will go through the most rigorous regiments to take care of their body and their health. They get massage, they get therapy, they meditate, they work out, they, they make sure they sleep well. They make all of these sacrifices to pursue a gold medal and you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, look, everyone competes in the games. They exercise self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, Christians, we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. And so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9.26, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Um, maybe you, like my wife, have never played sports. Oh, that's not true. You swam and did synchronized swimming. But maybe you're not really good with kicking a ball or throwing a ball or shooting a ball. It doesn't matter. You know exactly what it means to make sacrifices. And I think you can probably think in your life about the thing that you pursued the most and the sacrifices you made to get there. Is that true of your relationship with Christ? Is he your number one pursuit? All true Christians, all true Christians should be able to say to one degree or another that Christ is the primary pursuit of my life. And not just say it, and not just quote it, but live it. This brings us to letter F. 
Christ is the pleasure of my life. When we know that Christ is the purpose for which you live, the top priority and the greatest pursuit, you will either get burnt out or you would get bored if he is not your greatest delight. Listen, Christ must be your greatest pleasure. The Westminster Shorter Chasm, you should Shorter Catechism, you should know this by now. Question number one, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I love what Piper does to that. He says, we glorify God by enjoying him forever because those two things go hand in hand. But Christ is the believer's joy. That's evident in Paul's testimony because remember, he's sitting in prison. He's got no reason to rejoice. Chains, affliction, suffering, hostility, these circumstances, no one would want to be in that same situation. And you have to remember, this isn't Paul's first rodeo. He's been here time and time again. He goes into a city, he preaches, he gets beat up, he gets stoned, he gets up, he wipes himself off, and he goes right back in. And he does it out of joy. Why would he do that? Well, because Christ is his ultimate treasure and pleasure. When Paul says to live as Christ, He's telling us that he has a source of joy and he has a source of satisfaction which can never be affected. Nothing that the world can throw at the Apostle Paul can change that. It's indestructible. We talked about that in James and we talked about it in Philippians. There is nothing in this world that can ultimately satisfy us Christians because nothing in this world is ultimately eternal. Every pleasure, every single pleasure here is temporary. And if your hope and if your trust is just to be happy in this world, you will be let down over and over and over again. I think too often the world just dupes us into thinking that, man, if we just, if we just get a little bit more, if we just have a little bit better, and then we go through the, the, the laundry list of our life and say, maybe a better job, maybe more money, maybe a better location, maybe a better house, maybe cooler friends, maybe a, a, a better looking spouse, maybe greater achievements, maybe a new life, maybe more kids, maybe less kids, maybe whatever it is. And we keep going on and on and on thinking that whatever that one thing is, we will be more happy. I think about when I was young, for me to live was ball, basketball. They actually had t-shirts and whole mottos. Ball is life. You eat, you sleep, you drink. Well, you don't drink basketball, but you know what I mean. It's all basketball. That is something that I still struggle with. I love basketball. I do. You say, well, what are you saying, Don? We can't have hobbies and we can't enjoy things and enjoy sports and leisure? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. It's just that basketball needs to be way below Christ. And in fact, when I use basketball for my own glory and my own joy and my own delight, and I never really linked it to the gospel. And now being converted, you realize, wait a second, this thing that the Lord gifted me with and, and gave me a passion and desire for, oh, I just have to use it for his glory. And so basketball becomes about Jesus. Augustine said this, 
Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Listen, our joy and our satisfaction is only going to come in Christ and Christ alone. Samuel Rutherford, speaking about the world, said this. He said, build your nest in no tree here, for God has condemned this whole forest to destruction. Don't put all your eggs in the basket of the world. The apostle Paul, or sorry, John said it even better. He said, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of the life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, listen, Christian, it's passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. When Paul says to live as Christ, he's telling us, look, there is a true source of joy that you can have. This is available for all God's people. And it's not in the world. It's not in anything the world has to offer that our pleasure ultimately comes from knowing Christ. And now the logical sequence here as we look at this is that if Christ is your ultimate pleasure, then you will be most passionate about knowing him. And not just knowing him, but making him known. Because as you make him known, that increases your pleasure in him. Christ is the passion of my life. And so, let me ask you this, church. What are you really passionate about? Uh, just uh, last week, uh, we went to go get some tacos. I guess I'm passionate about tacos. But I went to get some tacos with a, a family, a couple that is not a part of our church, and then one of our members of our church. And um, we're sitting there, and this guy walks into the taco shop, and he's wearing an L.A. Dodger hat, and he's got his L.A. Dodger gear on. And I don't really like the Dodgers, but I'm from L.A., so I'm like, hey, L.A. And he comes up to me, and like, it's like instant love. You know, he starts talking about the Dodgers, and I start talking about the Lakers, and I'm from L.A. This is like Laker Nation, Raider Nation, bleeding Dodger blue. It was instantaneous. There was love. There was a connection. And it was real evident to me right from the get-go, because he starts talking. I don't know what he's talking about. It was real evident to him that I wasn't really a fan. He's a loyal, faithful follower. And I didn't even know who he was talking about. He starts throwing out names. I don't know who that guy is. There is a big difference between being a fan and being a faithful follower. And if we're being honest with ourselves, sometimes we meet people, maybe this is you, you are a die-hard follower of a sports team, and people know that. But people don't know that you are a die-hard follower of Jesus. And that right there should bring serious conviction to our lives. Because like the Lakers, they're going to let me down time and time again. They just lost the first round. Jesus Christ will never, ever let you down. Ever. I'm not saying be obnoxious. I'm not saying like, like, like Dodger fans and Raider fans, you got to punch people when they're not also a fan. But people should know. I'm not saying be obnoxious and all pro-Jesus like that. But Christians would be served well if we had spirit-empowered passion for the things of Christ. No one is ever going to look at our life and think Christ is great if we are not making much of him. For the Apostle Paul, look, nothing thrilled his heart more than Christ. 
So he talks about him. He's enraptured with Christ. He's not a half-hearted fan. He's not a secret fan. He's zealous. He's enthusiastic. He's excited. He's consumed. He's even willing to lay down his life for Christ. You know, many of you, you know that name John Wesley, which you might not know or might not be as familiar with is Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He sounds like a dude in Sesame Street. Zinzendorf was instrumental in John Wesley's conversion and even his discipleship. John Wesley, before he was a believer, he was on a ship and there was this life-threatening storm that took place. And so Wesley's freaking out. He's he's afraid that he's going to die and people on on the ship are going to die. And it's kind of like that scene in the Titanic where they all just take up the instruments and they start playing. All the Moravians, the, the followers of Zinzendorf, they begin to sing hymns. And it's not just the men, but it's the women and it's the children. And as John Wesley writes in his journal, he says, I was just so amazed, so amazed that these people had such confidence and zeal and trust in the Lord Christ. And it inspired John Wesley to write numerous hymns. But listen to what Zinzendorf said. He said, I have but one enthusiasm It is he, only he. Wesley, he witnessed firsthand that passion and it changed his life. Let me ask you this, church. Is there something that you are more passionate about than Jesus Christ? You more passionate about CrossFit, video games, traveling, your business success, your portfolio, a relationship, It should be evident to all that Christ is our purpose. He is the reason why we live. It should be evident to all that he is priority number one. It should be evident to all that we're pursuing him with everything we got, with our passion, with our all. But it should also most certainly be evident that he is the pattern of our life. He is the pattern of our life. Paul says this, be imitators of me as what? I am of Christ. Everything that Jesus did and said, that is what Paul wanted to do and to say. He understood that the goal of his Christian life was to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we must think like Christ and talk like Christ and walk like Christ and submit to the Father like Christ. We must not only act like Christ, but react like Christ. Everything in life is to be patterned after Jesus. And then you say, well, How is that possible? Because that's Jesus. And then we even look at Paul and say, how is that possible? Because that's Paul, but I'm just me. And here's the secret sauce, okay? If you haven't been paying attention, this is the most important thing. How do you pattern your life after Jesus? It's this simple. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, church, the more that we fix our eyes on Christ, the more that we're consumed, the more that we have a laser focus on him, the more that we'll be able to pattern our life after him. 
Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirits. Paul is so consumed with Christ, so enraptured with Christ that he longs to become like Jesus and display him to a watching world. Now, open your Bibles, look at Philippians 3, chapter, or sorry, Philippians 3, verse 7. Flip on over, Philippians 3, verse 7. I want you to see this in your own scriptures. This here, I think, is the key, and we'll obviously look at this in the weeks ahead. But Paul says this, if you want to pattern your life after Christ, listen to Paul's words, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul, he was only able to pattern his life after Christ because his greatest desire was to know him. Don't try to jump immediately to, I got to be like Jesus. I got to be like Jesus. I got to be like Jesus. First go to, I just want to know him. I want to experience him. I want to taste and know that he's good. You look at Paul, he's willing to suffer. He's willing to sacrifice. And you say, why, Paul? Why is this your life? Because I just want to know him. Whether in life or by death. And if I have more life to live, I want other people to know him. I want people to experience him, to delight in him. Let me close with this. John Wesley had a brother. His name was Charles Wesley, and he wrote this hymn. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always fills thy blood so freely shed for me. A heart resigned, submissive, meek, my Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. A humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing true and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him that dwells within. A heart in every thought renewed, a full and full of love divine. And then Charles says this, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Listen, Christ's greatest desire is to magnify himself and church, he wants to do it through you. Let's pray. And as you've got your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to think, church, how realistically would you complete that equation? For me to live is, what is it? What is it? Parents, 
You make all kinds of sacrifices for your kids. You love your kids. You lay down your life for your kids. Is life all about your children, though? For you who are in business, is life about wealth? For those of you that are studying and in school, is life all about knowledge for you? For you who are serving the military, is life all about America? For you young adults, do you just love, pleasure, and entertainment? If you're a teenager, is life for you about recognition or popularity? I mean, the list could go on and on and on. If it is true that for you life is fun or sex or entertainment or money or career or winning the big game, this is your opportunity to repent. God is calling you to replace these idols of our lives. Oh, he wants to replace those things. He promises to replace those things. And not only that, but he promises to give you so much more. But listen, don't miss the point. No one leaves that sentence blank. Everyone, everyone finishes that sentence with something. And so, Lord, please help us along with the Apostle Paul to truly and faithfully and genuinely say, for me to live is Christ. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.